All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 10. If you want to turn there in your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 10. A couple announcements while you're turning there in the scriptures. Um, and by the way, if you don't have Bibles and you want one, we've got a bunch of them back by the sound booth. You're welcome to grab one if you forgot yours or whatever. It's always nice to follow along. Make sure I'm not reading something weird or something. So those are there. Saturday, July 11th, from 8 to noon, we're going to have a work day here at the church. Um, if you're interested in coming to help out, we'll feed you lunch afterwards. I think I've, I think I've stiffed you a couple times now where I'm like, hey, bye, and you're like, no pizza, really? You know, you, you, we'll get you some food. So um, just some things. We got a lot of wood, a lot of wood out here, which is beautiful until it falls down and gets in the way. So um, got some projects we'd like to handle. So if you're available, July 11th, Saturday, 8 to noon, we'd love to have you. If you're not, well, we just, you're just not one of the cool people anymore. So <laughs> Sunday, July 12th, the very next day, that Sunday, we're having a baptism. Uh, we rented the Maryville Aquatic Center, so we have that from 7 to 9. Um, and so we're not two hours worth of baptisms. We're going to dunk those people really quick. Maybe use the slide or something, make it interesting. <laughs> But then you're all welcome to join in. We'll just swim and have fun, and, and you can bring food or whatever. The whole place is ours for a couple hours. Um, so join us to uh, encourage those folks being baptized, but then bring your suits and jump in. And if you don't have suits, you don't, well, you have to wear suits. But <laughs> if you don't want to swim, I should say, you don't have to. You can just hang out with us if you want to and enjoy the time. So that's going to be July 12th. Friday and Saturday, July 17th and 18th is the garage sale. We rescheduled that. Um, so that's coming up also. Um, and that garage sale is just things that you have that you want to donate for us to sell. And then the, uh, all the money doesn't, it doesn't go to our church. It's going to be for a ministry. Um, August 5th through the 8th is our camp, kids camp, uh, just like usual, no restrictions on it at all. So um, we'll have sign-up sheets for that next week. Join us for that and grab the volunteer sign-up sheet if you want to help out during those three days. Or if you want to sign your kids up, those sign-up sheets will be out there. Uh, on that table out there next uh, Sunday. So uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, the blessing that we're able to gather together, meet together, uh, and worship you in spirit and truth. We know that you are spirit and those who wish to worship you or want to worship you must worship you in spirit and truth. There's no other way. So we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the uh, your word, the sword of the spirit that we're able to go through and uh, study and learn from and draw closer to you. And as we draw closer to you, we know that your word says you'll draw close to us. And so we hold on to those promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful chapter. It's a bloody chapter. I've warned you and joked around a little bit about it, but it's a, it's a beautiful chapter as we see this. Um, it's a, uh, on a first service, I probably put too fine a point on it. Um, it's a part, uh, history repeats itself. And it's interesting as you read this history, um, how you can see certain things that look an awful lot like it even today as we go through this. And so I'm going to let your imaginations run wild. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to cause you to think things you shouldn't think, but you know, if the Holy Spirit leads you to think the way I was thinking, then so be it. Um, but no hints or even leading, uh, afterwards, if I've, if I've given you too much curiosity and you, you want to know, I'll, I'll tell you afterwards what I think. Um, but I'm going to leave my soapbox right over there, and I won't get on it during the teaching. Verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. 
And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. He's setting up a challenge. We know from the past few chapters that Jehu has taken out Ahab and, and Jezebel, the queen, actually didn't take out Ahab, but took out Jezebel and a lot of the cohorts. God is cleaning house and using this blunt instrument named Jehu to do so. He's a rough character, um, but he's the right man for the job at this time in history. And God has called him to fulfill the prophecy given uh, to them uh, through uh, Elijah to get rid of and clean up the house, clean up the house of Israel, remove these uh, crazy uh, Ahabs and Jezebels and, 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 and make sure there's a fresh start. Um, it is a bloody chapter as, as last week was and, and, and next week or next, the next chapter 11 is as well. Um, there is a time when God steps in finally. I, I've never had a problem with these chapters I've never had a difficulty reconciling these chapters with chapters in the New Testament. Some Christians do. They have a hard time. I just, I never have. I know him. I know that our God gives grace and mercy and opportunity for repentance and repentance and repentance. And over and over again, he calls them to come back to him and to not go down that road. Warns them beforehand, warns them during, warns them afterwards. But eventually he steps in. And I have no problem with God's timing on all of those things. Sometimes as a human, I look at my limited perspective and I say, you know, why wouldn't you step in here? Wouldn't this have been a better time? And I, I find myself sometimes criticizing or how come you let that go, but didn't let that go? Don't understand. I don't have his perspective. I don't understand his sight. As we've noticed, and God has set us up in his word to give us a little understanding into what he thinks, which he doesn't need to do, but he does for our benefit. He shows us who Ahab and Jezebel are, and he shows us what their relatives are like. Just a few of them. He says, here's what I have to look forward to if I leave this lineage and let them keep on going. I'll show you a few of the kids and what they do, and they did worse than Ahab and Jezebel. Anybody associated with these two picked up the habits, improved upon the sin, and made life for the innocent people around them absolutely horrific and hellish. And so he gives them an opportunity, repent, 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 repent. And finally he says, as I see forward to all the generations that are coming out of this family, I don't see anything good coming of it. I'm done. And he steps in at a certain amount of time and says, no more. They've had enough time. They had enough opportunity. I'm stepping in and I'm cleaning house. He did that with the flood until every thought and every intent of the heart was wicked. And God could see that, but nobody else could. And he saved eight in a boat along with all the animals. He did the same thing at the uh, Tower of Babel, where he confounded their language because where they were headed was not where God wanted them to go. And he waited and he waited and he waited until finally says, no, enough of this. And we see this happening in this story as well. Enough, no more. And so Jehu fits the bill. Jehu's a rough character, but Jehu has enough intestinal fortitude to finish the job. He needed a fighter. And so God calls this Jehu and says, do this. And so he's doing it. And he says, now 
You guys that are raising all of Ahab's sons all over the nation of Israel, remember they're divided into two kingdoms. We're not going to rehash that, but they are. So we're specifically speaking of the nation of Israel, the northern 10 tribes. You're raising the kid. Now they did that. There's two reasons for that. One, you got 70 sons, can't raise them all, enough nannies in the world. So you spread them out a little bit. So they each get their little idea and their little circle of friends, their little circle of protectors, and they're kind of raised up in an environment uh, worthy of Ahab. And they're not all bunched together with a lot of infighting in the nursery, throwing blocks at each other, you know. So there they are being raised all over. Second aspect of these are Ahab and Jezebel's tentacles. There's just kind of a, an occupying force. You've got the little kid there being raised up in that uh, region, but then you've got all these people helping raise him. So there's, you know, a good 100, 250 people. It's a little pocket of Ahab and Jezebel there. So that's the idea of why they would do that. That, and they didn't want to raise their own kids, apparently. So he sends a letter off after he's been made king. Remember that last week as uh, Jezebel realizes she's no longer in charge, and she hears the cry of the people and the blowing of the trumpets that Jehu is now king, and um, she did what she did. Jehu calls on these folks to, hey, you've got fortified cities. You've got weapons. Pick the best of those 70 sons and put them on the throne. I'm throwing down the gauntlet, basically. I'm challenging you. You want to challenge my authority? Let's do this. But let's do it now and supposed to later. Well, they're not interested in that kind of fight. And here's their response. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, two kings could not stand against him or stand up to him. Excuse me. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons sent to Jehu saying, we're your servants. We will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. And then he wrote a second letter to them. Like, now we're not interested in picking a fight. What do you want to do? We're on your team. Similar to what happened with the eunuchs and Jezebel. She sticks her head out the window and says, uh, what are you guys here? You know, you know, Cruella DeVille kind of scene there. And he says, is there any eunuchs up there that want to toss her out the window? And there were three and they did. This is the same idea. Is there anybody that wants to challenge me or you want to be on my team? Basically, we're on your team. We're not going to fight against you. Okay, then listen up. Second letter. If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of these men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. I want it done. Take them all out. Every one of those guys. He's cleaning house. He's taking care of everyone. Now, these guys aren't little kids anymore. They're grown men. But I don't want you coddling them anymore. I don't want them rising up against me anymore. They're all over the place. So I never know where there's going to be a, a rebellion. We're just going through the nation and we're getting rid of all the corruption. Wink. I told you I wasn't going to give you a hint, but well, there I did. Now the king's sons were 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered the 70 persons. I mean, there isn't even a pause. Yeah, it says he wants us to kill him. Go find Bob and take his head. So they do, all of them. And then a messenger came. Oh, wait, they put their heads in baskets and sent them uh, to him to, at Jezreel. So, <laughs> special delivery. Um, then a messenger came and told him, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Mm. Now, you would do this, obviously, very barbaric. 
strange, you know, um, but purposeful, you know. You've got two groups in Israel at the time, okay? And that's what this chapter is about. You've got one group that is patriotic, which we're going to read about here, that loves their nation, have separated themselves from the system in their country at this time, hate the perversion of the religion and the way that they're worshiping other gods, hate it to the point where they've separated themselves, living in tents, and they are ready for reformation. They're ready for things to be righted. And so they're watching this new King Jehu because nobody knows exactly where his heart is because you never knew. You followed their actions, not their words. You've got a second group of people over here that are the worshipers of Baal who have been in power for a very long time. And they're watching this Jehu and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Whose side is he on? So you've got these two groups of people here. Well, when you show up at the city of Jehu and you see two piles of heads of Ahab's sons, kind of gives you an indication of which direction the country's now headed. Which, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> so, it's not funny. You guys should be kind of sick people here. Um, so there they are, these piles, and people are like, oh, you know, oh, I see. So they're piled there. So it was. Uh, in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, these are all the people that just killed the 70 sons, you are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? He's saying that because you guys, when you saw me take over Ahab and take out Jezebel and all that, a lot of criticism coming my way. There was a lot of, uh, you know, who, who, who does this kind of thing. Uh, and so all you righteous people out there that were criticizing me earlier about Ahab and Jezebel, uh, who killed all these heads that are beside my house? You did. In other words, we're in this together. And so there's no criticism I'm going to get from you, and I'm not going to give you any criticism. We're in this together. The Reformation has begun, okay? Now know that nothing uh, shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. In other words, the prophecy is being fulfilled all of it's going to be fulfilled. For the Lord has done what he has spoken by his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel. And that's a circling moment in your Bible. And this is a problem here. And all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. Now we'll hit on this at the end of the teaching. Jehu will be held accountable here for going beyond what God's word said. The prophecy was simply for Ahab. It was not meant for all this collateral damage. He is a blunt instrument. He is going to accomplish what God asked him to accomplish, but he's going to go beyond what was written, beyond what was spoken by the Lord, and he'll be held accountable for that later on. Not him personally, but his line will be, okay? So keep that in mind. It's very important that we hold on to God's word. That we have a zeal for God's word, but we have a zeal to also be very obedient to stay within God's word and not to go beyond what is written. The Bible tells us that. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is found right here. Everything. The Holy Spirit doesn't go beyond what is written. In fact, this is the sword of the Holy Spirit. He has no other offensive weapons. This is it. And so when I read, 
I stay within Scripture. You got to stay. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. You stay within the bounds of Scripture. It pertains to everything that's in it, pertains to life and godliness. The volume of the book is written of me, Jesus says. So you stay here. There's a lot of move to experience more of God, and it goes beyond God's word. Well, I will easily and confidently challenge any of those things as not being from God because they're not within Scripture. I can say that with a wholeheartedly. I'm not putting God in a box. God puts himself in a box. In his word, he says, I have magnified my word above my name. Very important. God holds himself accountable to what he said, and I won't go beyond it, he says. So I believe him when he says that stuff. I hold on to that. Jehu goes beyond what he's called to do. In his zeal, which is good, but unchecked and in disobedience to the Lord, zeal is bad. In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, this is good zeal. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's a good zeal. It's zeal and control. It's very decisive. It's even violent. He sits down and makes a whip of cords. Please picture our loving Jesus sitting down going, you know, making a cat of nine tails. Say, okay, snap, get out of here. You know, this is our Jesus. This is a place of prayer. You guys made it a den of thieves. People can't even worship here. Flipping tables. Oh, there's doves. Not going to flip those tables because that'll hurt the doves. Take them out of here. But money changers, cattle, oxen, and all you people that are exchanging Roman money for temple coin and doing a horrible exchange rate, out. Zeal. But measured and fully in line with the Father. Proverbs 19.2 warns us about zeal without knowledge. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he sins who hastens with his feet. Zeal without knowledge is bad. It gets us into trouble, and it's going to get Jehu into trouble. I mean, it has, but you're going to see it come out. Zeal for the Lord is wonderful until you start talking about your zeal for the Lord. See, zeal for the Lord is obvious to everybody watching, but not necessarily obvious to the person who has it. They're just excited. They may be called Jesus freaks, Bible thumpers, crazy religious nuts or whatever, but they don't talk about them being Jesus freaks, Bible thumpers. They don't say that about themselves. It's just, I'm just trying to follow the Lord. I'm trying to do what he said. I know that you haven't done this in your life, but I really feel convicted. I need to get rid of all this in my life. Well, that's pretty extreme. Maybe. But it's between me and the Lord that I'm doing this. That's a zeal that's good. But when you start saying, have you noticed my zeal for the Lord lately? It's very zealous for zealness, zeal, 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 you know? They get weird. People like that weird me out. And I'm a pastor. And I'm pretty weird. But as I see people talking about, you know, I'm, a, I'm zealous for God's word. Are you zealous for God's word? I'm zealous for God's word. I'm like, I don't think I'm as zealous as you are. I have a hard time with it, you know? They get bizarre. And he does. 
And that zeal or that self-awareness of their zeal causes problems and causes them to step out beyond what God's called them to do a lot of times. And they reap the consequences of it. So I measure myself. I watch myself. Am I proud of my zeal? And I've just brought sin into what should be a beautiful thing. Verse 12. And he arose, Jehu, and departed and went to Samaria. On the way at Beth Ekad of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahazai, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, and they probably shouldn't have, We are the brothers of Ahazai. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Nope. Oops. And he said, hmm, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Ekad, 42 men, and he left none of them. Well, that was convenient. I didn't have to look for you guys. You came right to me. Who are you guys? We're here to see the queen mother die. And he does. Cleaning house, removing all of that. Now, verse 15. When he departed, Jehu, from there, he met Jonadab. Now, Jonadab's a good guy. Jonadab is in charge of the separatists we talked about earlier. He's a, he's a part of the group. And we'll, we'll, that's the last scripture reference I want to read to you um, about them. Um, in, just in Jeremiah 35 here, I'll do it at the end of this section here. At verse 17, I'll read to you a portion of, or at least highlight it. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? <laughs> and Jonadab answered, it is. And Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up into his chariot, and then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. We're fellow zealots. See, Jonadab was known for that. He's the leader of this group that is very patriotic and isn't real happy with what's going on in the country. They've removed themselves from it. They're watching at a distance, hoping for reformation. And Jehu knows that he's like that. He knows he's the guy he wants up on the chariot with him. It gives him street cred with this group. Wink. Okay. Come see my zeal for the Lord. Join me in my quest, you know, kind of thing. And so he does. Sure, why not? Um, And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Now, Jeremiah 35, the entire chapter, which I'm not going to bore you with or read to you, Look it up. Read it on your own. Jeremiah 35 describes this group. Jeremiah describes their heart for the Lord, their desire. And so let me give you a synopsis from a commentator. I'll give him credit. Patterson and Austell are the commentators, but they worded it better than I could. I was going to try to steal it, but I'm, I don't want to plagiarize. So I'll just I'll, I'll read exactly what they said. It's perfect. Jeremiah records that Jonadab was the leader of an aesthetic group that lived in an austere nomadic life in in the desert, drinking no wine, depending solely on the Lord for their sustenance, separatists to the core and strong patriots. They lived in protest and the materialism and religious compromise in Israel. That's who Jonadab was the leader of. This group of people who had a heart for God and wanted to see him 
the Lord rule and reign again and be worshiped only bringing back Israel to their roots. This was him. And now Jehu, the blunt instrument has brought him up onto the chariot with him to see that. Now, of course, everybody sees this and they realize what kind of reformation is taking place. All right. Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. What? Jehu just said, hey, you know how Ahab served Baal, the foreign god? He was an amateur. I'm going to perfect it. Eh, He's being tricky. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. So he puts this, I want to invite all of the enemies of God. Wait, I mean, all the worshipers of Baal into one place. And we're going to do the special offering just for Baal. And if you miss it, you're dead. You know, party favors are going to be denied. I want you to get here and be on time. It's going to be a blast. So he invites them all to this Baal party. And Jehu said, (laughs) well, here's the caveat. Whoever is missing shall not live, but Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. Is he for us or against us? I don't know. He's having this great party for Baal and we worship Baal. Maybe maybe he's our guy. So come on up. Come on up. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a great great deal. So they come out of the woodwork because they weren't sure. Roaches coming out from under the rocks trying to say, oh, I think it's okay. And Jehu said, uh, here's what he said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out vestments for them. So they all get to wear nice, bright, identifying robes for worship. Now, if that isn't enough, he goes a step further. Look at this. And he said to the one in charge of the war robe, bring them out. So he brought out the vestments for him. And Jehu and Jonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Jonadab's in on this. Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. So he tells the worshipers of Baal to go ask for ID, make sure these are all truly heathens in here, make sure there aren't any innocents in this room at all. I mean, uh, foreigners that don't truly love Baal and make sure they get out of here. He's making sure that there nobody innocent dies in this. So they went in to offer and to search and make sure. Um, but only the worshipers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and had said, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. I'm giving you a job. Make sure no one gets out of this. We are cleaning house. We're removing all the Baal worshipers. We're getting rid of all of this garbage in our country. It needs to go. Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offerings that Jehu sent to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out 
and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillars of Baal, the big one, and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Good for you. Now, a refuse dump means he literally made it the toilet of the city. You go outside the city, you dig a hole, you go to the bathroom, you cover, right? He made that place that. You couldn't desecrate a piece of ground more than that. It's absolutely worthless now. It's untouchable. You don't, you don't do anything. So make it a refuse stump. And here's the problem. Verse 29, however, there's always a however, unfortunately, with this Jehu. Blunt instrument accomplishes what God wants. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin, that is, uh, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. Close but he didn't get rid of all of it. Now, what is the difference? What are they talking about? When Israel first split into the northern tribes and the southern tribes, the northern king, this guy, this Jeroboam, had a problem. What if, since we don't have the temple in our part of the country, these folks, my folks, decide to go down there and worship, and they keep them down there, we're going to lose power. So he asked for advice, and his counselors said, make a couple golden calves and say, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. That's the same thing they said, when Moses was on top of the mountain, when he's on top of the mountain, getting the 10 commandments, the people were waiting and tired of waiting. And they said, ah, we don't know if he's coming down. Aaron threw in the golden earrings and everything. And out came this calf miraculously. And they said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Now they're trying to worship. Not really. I don't know how else to word it. They're trying to worship the true and living God. Baal was a completely separate God, took no credit for Egypt, had nothing to do with the 10 plagues, had a completely different system altogether. Foreign God, foreign God, foreign God. Okay. The calves were to be in the image that they believe of the God, the true and living God who brought them out. It's just a little bit different. It's a nuance. I understand. It's not much, but the difference is I said, God said, I don't want you to make any images of me. You can make my chair. You can make my house. I'll even let you embroider some angels on the inside of the Holy of Holies places because that's kind of what it looks like up here. But don't you dare put anything on that throne that you think looks like me. You cannot make an image of me, he says. And that's troubling to them. So they made a golden calf to put in that position. So they were trying to worship the true and living God, but they were not doing it according to the prescription that God had given them. So they were worshiping idols, but you get it. I don't need to beat this horse. It's down. We understand. And so he would do this great reformation against those foreign gods. We know exactly who they are, but did no reformation with the current religious system of worshiping the true and living God, which also needed to be reformed, which is what we read earlier with Jesus flipping tables. You guys, you guys have perverted this. This has to get back to the way it was. The reformation didn't go far enough, in other words. So he kept his heart. Hey, we've always had golden calves. It kind of represents the, uh, the, the God that brought us out of Egypt. We're going to leave those because it wouldn't be politically expedient for him to get rid of those golden calves. 
We're going to leave those things alone because those are the things that are okay and have been fully accepted by most of the truly religious people in the country. So they left it. Okay. That story is in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33. I'm not going to read it. You can read it on your own, but that's where Jeroboam gets the idea of the golden calves. Verse 32, the death of Jehu. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazael conquered them in all the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. All the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him at Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So he did his job. He did what he was called to do. Uh, and it was a blessing. It was a partial reformation. Now, here's your last scripture. Hosea chapter 1, verse 4. He, God has not forgotten what Jehu did when he stepped beyond. He's, he's appreciated what he did in the name of the Lord. He did accomplish all those things, but remember, went beyond. And God holds us accountable for going beyond. Hosea 1.4 says, and it's just a small verse, then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. He's going to pay for it, or his line is, his lineage is. I'm not letting that go. I didn't forget that. When Moses led the people out, they got thirsty. And they began to complain about being thirsty. And so Moses goes to God and says, they're thirsty. I don't know what to do. He goes, well, go strike that rock with your staff. And so he did. And water came out. And everybody's thirst was quenched. Later on, the people got thirsty again. Moses was angry that they were still complaining. He got a little tired of their whining. And he asked God, they're complaining again. He goes, well, I want you to go back to that rock and I want you to speak to it. And then the thirst will be quenched. So he went back to that rock and Moses struck the rock again. Didn't speak to it. And the water came out. The people's thirst was quenched. And yet God pulled Moses aside and says, you're not going to be able to lead the people into the promised land because you misrepresented me at the rock. God was doing a picture, a type of Christ in the Old Testament, showing what he would do through his Messiah. In fact, he tells us that in Hebrews, that that rock that followed Israel in the desert was Christ. Christ was to be smitten once. And after that, we simply speak to him to receive that refreshment of water from him, that living water that he has for us. But you do not continually crucify the Christ. You don't do that. And that's what Moses did. He symbolically crucified that rock again, which was supposed to be Christ. No, that's not how it works. You messed up the picture so much so because you went beyond what I asked you to do, told you to do, he held Moses accountable. For 40 years, he's been walking with these people, dealing with them. He says, you're going to get right to the border. But after that, I can't, bring you into the, I can't let you bring them into the promised land. And if he would hold Moses accountable for that kind of error and hold Jehu accountable for his kind of error here, I want to be very careful on how I represent the Lord and what I do for God and what I don't do for God. My zeal is fine, provided it's measured and fully in line with God's word and fully in line with what God's called me to do. God has called me to a specific ministry, and I have learned the hard way 
where my ministry lies and where it does not lie. I have stepped out oftentimes beyond what God's called me to do, and I've fallen flat on my face on purpose. God has shown me that's your deal. That's not what I've asked you to do. I've asked you to do this. And every one of us has that calling of God in our lives and has parameters that we need to work within. We may have zeal for the Lord, but don't go beyond what he's called us to do, what he's equipped us to do. Every single body part has a specific job. Every tool in your tool bag has a specific job, but God uses body parts. The eye sees, the ear hears, the feet walk, the hands do, the mouth speaks. But we don't try to mix those tasks up with each other's finger. I don't hold a nail with my toes and try to pound it in. I know what's going to happen. Ouch. God's going to ask me, why in the world did you not let the hand do its job? Why did you think as a foot that you could do it better? I don't know. Sorry. Stay within. Use those gifts, those abilities, those equippings to, to the fullest to be a blessing to God. And be content with that. And don't go beyond. He's never called us to do that. And he warns us that. So that's where we close this morning. Uh, We're going to have communion now. And uh, this is a time for us to remember what the Lord has done. And when we pray and we sing songs and we hear God's word, it prepares us for this moment right here where we remember the Lord's death. Some of us heard today's message and we're brought a little lower. We have a lot of zeal. We've got a lot of ideas. We've got a lot of criticism of everybody else. And he brought us low and says, you know what? Your zeal needs to be measured and within God's bounds. Other of us think I'm worthless. I have nothing to do with God. I don't know how he could ever use me again based off the week that I've had. And he's here to raise you up with that same message. If he can use Jehu, he can use anybody. But when we come to this table together, Brought low and brought up, we come equally on level ground. The only reason any of us are going to heaven is because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. We remember and proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, reminding us that even after 20 plus, 30 plus, 50 plus years of ministry, I am no better off than the day that I was first saved by Jesus. I've only been an obedient servant for those amount of years because of my salvation. And likewise, for those I don't even think I can. I don't think I'm equipped. I don't think I have enough in me. I don't think I know enough. God's here to say, you'll never know enough. You'll never be qualified. You'll never be capable in your own strength to do anything I've asked you to do, but I will do it through you, just like I brought you into heaven. And so that's what we're here to remember here, to bring us low and to bring us high, depending on where we are. Humble us or to exalt us. God has a way of doing that with his word at the same time. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, describes the Lord's Supper, which is what we're partaking in right now as a family. He says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then Paul interjects here and says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
Every Christian holding this cup and this piece of bread in their hands this morning is proclaiming that I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did. We're reminded of that this morning. And everybody who doesn't think they can serve God at all is also holding the same cup and the same bread in their hands, realizing now that I could have never done anything for the Lord in my own strength. It's always going to be him in my life. And so I give my life to him this morning to do with it whatever he wants to do. I'm proclaiming his death. God's death on the cross was the ultimate equalizer, bringing us all into the same place, guilty but forgiven. Same. Lord, we thank you for this bread, what it represents, your broken body. We thank you for this cup, which represents your shed blood for our sins, and that while we could do nothing to save ourselves, you stepped into time and space as Jesus Christ and died on the cross for us, for all the past sins and all the past people and for all the future sins and the future people. At one point in time, you came and accomplished all and everything. And this morning, we proclaim that death. We celebrate that death. We're sorry it had to happen, but we're so thankful that it did. That by your son, by your son being the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we're saved from our certain doom, you've saved us by taking the penalty upon yourself. So this morning, we thank you for that as a family. We're reminded of that this morning. And as one body, we celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen. See you.